I had a little moment when I was in the back of the room there and the kids were doing the, uh, the Hosanna song because, um, as the group in here knows, uh, just last night we had a leaders meeting. We huddled about 30 of our leaders together and we were looking at the future and we spent some time being really honest about the challenges that we're facing and we filled this flip chart, just filled it with, we call them the mountains, the mountains that we're facing. And most of the energy really came around young people. And, and there were tears as, as, as our leaders were just mourning over what we're seeing and the challenges they're facing. And what choked me up is uh, um, that word Hosanna, it doesn't translate into English well at all, but it, it's, it's a, um, it, it roughly translates as save us. And it's both a praise and it's a war cry all in, in one. And to see these kids crying out to their father, save us. God hears those prayers, doesn't he? He hears those prayers. Um, if you come from a background that, that didn't commemorate Palm Sunday, what we're doing in this room today is we're commemorating a real event, an event where Jesus of Nazareth rode into Jerusalem um, to the sound of these, these praises. This is uh, a real event that you find in four different ancient accounts that we have in our Bible. And this Lent, what we've been doing is we've been looking at Lent through the lens of Luke. And so that's where we're going to be turning here today. Uh, in Luke 9.51, it's really interesting. Luke, he arranges this story in a really unique way. He, starting in verse or chapter 9, verse 51, Luke says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And the way it's organized then is we follow Jesus on that journey to Jerusalem. Today we're here. This is, this is the point in the story that, that we come to. So for the last 10 chapters, they've been building for this moment that we're going to look at right now here. This moment that we're commemorating today it was Passover. And so Jesus wasn't the only one heading into Jerusalem. There were thousands and thousands of faithful Jewish pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so many of them were coming in from the same direction that Jesus was. The, the point of entry was a little town called Jericho. And then it's actually one of the lowest places on the planet, one of the lowest cities on the planet. And they start there, and then they go on this long, winding, wilderness path until they get to the holy city. So when you crest that final ridge on the Mount of Olives and you look out, there's Jerusalem. So this is the moment that all these last 10 chapters have been building towards. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. If you have your Bible with you, let's open up to Luke chapter 19. We'll start with verses 37 and 38. Verses 37 38. If you don't have a Bible at home, if you go to Bible.com, they've got a great app that you can download for free. All right, here we go. Verses 37 through 38. As Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this song that they were singing, this is a psalm. It is Psalm 118. It is one of the songs that Jewish 
pilgrims would be singing on their way to Jerusalem. It is a song of faith in a God who defeats his foes and establishes his kingdom. All right, here's some more of uh, the lyrics from that Psalm 119. Out of, the, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then remember these next words. These are from Psalm 118 too. They're going to come into play here in just a minute. The nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They would have been singing that too. Well, the praises build and build as Jesus gets closer and closer to the holy city. And as he does, this happens, verses 39 through 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because this is the moment. Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem, and now he's here. And Jesus says, hey, if the human voices stop singing, the stones are going to cry out. This is it. As I've been saying, Luke's been building up to this moment. Ten chapters. Now Jesus is here. So what does he say? When he finally gets here, what's the first thing he says? What's the first thing that he does? This is our question before us. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. In his last week, what did Jesus do first? That's what we're going to look at. And here it is. This is the very first thing that Luke records Jesus doing when he gets there. In this moment, this is uh, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it. Upon arrival, what did Jesus do first? Just place to write this down. When he drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus what? He wept. All four Gospels tell the story of Jesus arriving at Jerusalem, but only Luke records this part right here, that he wept. And then Luke goes on to explain why Jesus wept. Jesus wept because he could see what was coming. Take a look at this. Look at 19, verses 42 through 44. He wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you missed Pastor Dan's message last week, go back and listen. One of the things that Dan talks about is how this happened. This event happened. 70 AD, you can look it up in the history books. Rome surrounded the city, hemmed them in on every side. The people were starved. People were slaughtered, men, women, and children. Now remember what the crowd was singing right before that, right? That first Palm Sunday, the nations surrounded me, but I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but I cut them off. Jesus could see a very different future than the one that they saw. 
the people they had chosen a path. And that path was a path that God could not bless. It was a path that led to destruction. So that's the first thing. The very first thing that Luke records happening. When Jesus drew near to the city, he wept. Here's the second. This is what comes right after that. Verses 45 through 46, as Luke puts these pieces together here, here's what we got. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of robbers. That was the second thing. I invite you to write this down. When he entered the temple courts, Jesus drove the robbers out. In Luke's gospel, this is interesting, this is the first time we see Jesus back in the temple since he was how old? Does anyone know? 12. This is the, the, the first time we see Jesus back in the temple since he was 12. And think back, those of you who know Luke's account, think about Jesus' relationship with the temple back then. You know, back then, he's, he's, he said, I, he's got a connection to this place. He called it his father's house. And now he's back. And what he sees in his father's house, it infuriates him. It's interesting, too, Jesus, if we had more time, we could really dig into this even more here on, on all kinds of levels. Uh, Luke anchors his words and actions to the scriptures here. Um, the, what, what Jesus just says here combines, and what he did, combines Isaiah 56.7 and Jeremiah 7.11. If you want to be more like Jesus, anchor your words and your actions to Scripture. Can I get an amen on that? That's, that's what he did. And then, do you remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at what Luke had to say about the devil and his demons. It's interesting right here, Luke uses the same language. Jesus, it was talked about how Jesus drove the demons out. What does he do to the robbers now? He drives them out. That's why I had to emphasize those, those two words. Now, what exactly were these people doing wrong? Why did he call them robbers? Well, let's start with the context. As we mentioned earlier, you've got Jewish pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem from all over for the Passover, and they needed things for the sacrifice. And so they can't carry all this stuff with them, or it would have been really, really hard. So they needed animals, they needed wine, they needed oil, they needed salt, they needed doves for their sacrifices. They also, a lot of them would need money changers because they have different currencies. Now, that's pretty much where the agreement ends as far as what was going on exactly here. Scholars will be agreeing, on, for the most part, on that point, but, but what exactly was it that infuriated Jesus? That's where there's a lot of disagreement, and there's also some other disagreement around the particulars. Did Jesus drive people out once or twice? There's disagreement about that. Where exactly did this take place? Did it take place in the area known as the court of the Gentiles, or did it happen in another section that's called the royal stoa? There's different scholars that make different cases for that. At least one historian says, it's interesting, this is about the time where we think they actually transferred the buying and selling into the temple grounds. So that scholar says, well, it's clear what's going on there. This is, they're blending worship and commercialism. That's what's going on. Or... Others have said, no, the real issue that Jesus was mad about is the buying and selling was taking place in that court of the Gentiles. Therefore, the Gentiles had no place to go to pray. So it was that. There's others who said the issue is just as simple as they were cheating people. They were, they were doing rates they shouldn't have been doing. Was it one of these things? Was it a combination of these things? We don't know for sure. For what it's worth, here's my take. 
I think if we start pointing fingers at exactly what they did, it gets really easy then for us to say, that was them, and I'm not them. I didn't change shortchange anybody's money. I'm not invading some place of prayer with my wares. It's really easy if we try to find out exactly what made Jesus angry, then we can start to distance ourselves from it. And if you turn and read Luke 19 through 21, and you think the takeaway is we should be able to come away self-righteous and judging others, then you are missing Luke 19, 20 through 21. Can I get an amen from those who've read that? That is not the point at all. This section is filled with warnings for the self-righteous and those who are focused on what others were doing wrong. Well, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he wept. When he entered the temple courts, Jesus drove the robbers out. And there's also a place to write this down, too. Through his words and actions, the other thing Jesus did right away was revealed what was to come. Jesus revealed what was to come. The people were on a path that would lead to so much pain and so much hurt and so much regret. And one of the things you see in these chapters, the leaders were leading people that way. The leaders were leading them that way. In fact, Jesus told a parable about that. He told multiple parables about these things, but here's a specific one. He, he said, once there's a vineyard, and the founder of that vineyard entrusted people to take care of it for him, and they began to act like it's ours. Like it's ours. What Jesus says and what Jesus does in Luke 19 through 21, it reveals that judgment is coming for those who can't really see what's going on. So Jesus urges people, open your eyes. In so many ways in this section, open your eyes. He goes, see those influencers over there. See those people with all the fancy clothes that love to be in the center of attention, put themselves in places of honors. He says, they are not always who they seem to be. He says, see that poor woman over there. The one who put in those two copper coins. You see how she's surrounded by all of those wealthy folks who are just dumping in all this wealth. You know who gave more than all of them combined? She did. Open your eyes. He says, you see this beautifully constructed temple? The whole thing's going to come crashing down. The religious leaders, they couldn't see what Jesus saw. Here's what they did notice. They noticed that other people were starting to see what Jesus saw. They didn't like that. Imagine if, imagine if we had one of those old black and white pictures. Imagine if, if technology had existed back then to take a snapshot of the crowd. So, so try to picture this. Try to actually see a physical, old, tiny picture of the crowd. Who would be there? Who would be there? Maybe we'd see those women. Luke said there was a group of women. They followed him all the way from Galilee. All the way. There was this group of women. They had never had a man treat them the way that Jesus treated them. He changed their life. Maybe they were there. Maybe we'd see Zacchaeus. Because where did Jesus meet Zacchaeus? He met him in Jericho. And he changed Zacchaeus' life. Maybe Zacchaeus followed along. I got to see this. Maybe we'd see a guy named Bartimaeus. Where did Jesus meet Bartimaeus? In Jericho. 
Why might Bartimaeus have been following him? Because Bartimaeus was once blind, and now he could see because of Jesus. Maybe he'd see Lazarus. Lazarus lived right there, right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Why might Lazarus have showed up? Because he was dead. And what did Jesus do? Raised him up from the dead. That changes your life right there. All kinds of... That was a good change. That was just a good change. Oh, What about people like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea? When you pull all of the Gospels together, you start to see a composite of these people. They were... They were on the inside with those religious leaders, but they were starting to go, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't fit my narrative, but he could be right. And we could all be wrong. Maybe they were there too in the crowd. Well, as more and more people, this was happening, where they were opening their eyes to the things Jesus was saying, there were those who said, we've got to stop this. We have got to put a stop to this. Opposition was growing too. Verse 47, this is one of many verses that speaks to this in Luke. As Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to what? How do do they interpret it here in ESV? To destroy him. Now it's really interesting as I was looking at a couple different translations, a lot of them said kill the, the scholars are saying, actually, it is more accurate in this case to say destroy. The word was even stronger than kill. So we translate it in more literal translations as destroy. They wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to absolutely destroy him. But here's what they couldn't see, among other things. Who were they destroying? Were they going to destroy Jesus? They were destroying themselves. And as leaders, they were destroying those around them by trying to destroy Jesus. But here's where we can get into trouble again. Just as we're about to point fingers at them, like we were going to point fingers at the robbers, we come across passages like this, Luke 21, 34 through 36. But watch, who does it say? Watch. Watch yourselves. The day's going to come upon you suddenly like a trap, upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. Stay, what does it say? Stay awake at all times. What else does it say? Praying. Stay awake and pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Pray and stay awake, it says here. Anyone else? That ring a bell? Pray and stay awake? Is there anyone else in Holy Week? Jesus said that. Mm -hmm, To the disciples on the night of his betrayal. Pray, stay awake. Pray and stay awake. One of the last things that Jesus said before the soldiers and the temple enforcers took him away was pray and stay awake. All right, let's make this personal. After six weeks of walking with Jesus through Luke, I invite you to write this down. Holy Week is here. It's here. Holy Week is here. This is not just another week. And like it did then, Holy Week will go fast. So what does it look like to pray and stay awake? When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, it says what he saw caused him to weep, to just weep. 
And as I was preparing for this message, it was really interesting. I came across one pastor, and, and he was talking about the time where he was walking that road. You know, 2,000 years later, he had a chance to go and walk that road from Jericho through the wilderness up to Jerusalem. And as he got closer and closer to the city, closer and closer to that moment where you crest the Mount of Olives and you look down over the city, here's what happened, and these are in his own words. He said, along the way, some little boys joined us. We were delighted, and we thought there ought to be some children in this recreation of that earlier parade. Just as we were standing there in awe of Jerusalem, the little boy tugged on my coat. And he said, mister, would you like to have my sister? She lives right over there. We continued on our way with a new understanding of why Jesus might have wept. I invite you to write this down. There is still so much cause for weeping. Can I get an amen to that? Today there is still so much that is broken. There are still wars and injustice. Just this week, stories are breaking. We're filming this earlier. I mean, stories are breaking today, yesterday. Mass graves, unspeakable violence. I'm hearing rumors of mines being left behind. Who does that? Who does that? Millions of people going without food, don't have access to clean water. Millions of people bought and sold like their property. Today, every town, every city, every continent, there's cause for weeping. As I mentioned earlier, we were here brainstorming as a, as a church, and there were tears. So we shared our own sorrow over what's happening with kids and teens, for marriages, for families. People are still bowing to the wrong idols. The blind are still leading the blind. People are still building bigger barns, but they aren't rich towards God. People are still judging and pointing fingers at others. They're not looking in the mirror. People are still letting the wrong spirits in, keeping the right spirit out. If you're only going to write down one thing today, if you're only going to write down one, go with this. Praise God for a Savior who weeps for us. Can I get an amen to that? Praise God for a Savior who weeps for us. When Jesus crested that ridge on the Mount of Olives on that first Palm Sunday, he could see things that others couldn't. And what did we see when we looked at him? The one of whom it's said in the scripture, he is the one, the fullness of God dwells in him. We didn't see somebody who knew that he was about to be crucified by these people. We didn't see someone who's like, oh, you're going to get what's coming to you. And gloating, what did we see? We see someone who weeps. N.T. Wright put it like this. He said, when you reflect on Jesus' words and deeds of judgment, don't forget the tears. And remember with awe that if Luke 19, 11 through 27 is indeed about Jesus embodying the long-awaited return of God to Zion, those tears are not just the human reaction to a sad and frustrating situation. They are the tears of a God of love. I had a chance to make it to one of those Let's Talk Thursdays that we had in here. 
Um, and uh, Joel was leading us in a Bible study. He was connecting the book of Luke to the book of Revelation. And the week that I was there, he asked us to read and reflect on Revelation 5. And he said, see if anything stands out to you. And because I was working on this message at that time, the, here's the one that jumped out to me, Revelation 5, 5. What does it say? Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is conquered. He's conquered. Weep no more. Can you imagine the day when our faith shall be sight and those who are in Christ shall weep no more? Well, on this day, about 2,000 years ago, they were singing Psalm 118. It says this, verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 2,000 years later, we got a song. We're going to close with one called Homecoming. God has made a way. There is an open gate for all who would enter through it. The Lion of Judah, he made a way. This is a song about that. This is going to sound so cliche, but it's true. In an age when there's so much that's causing our Savior to weep, can we bring him some joy? We can. Let's enter in. Let's welcome him home. And why do I say that? Luke 15, verse 7, says there is rejoicing when a sinner repents. Do we got any sinners in the room? Yes, we do. We do. Is there something today that we could say, God, I'm sorry, I'm coming home. Let's make Jesus rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've revealed not just your law, which is good. You've revealed your heart, which is so good. May we bring joy to you today. If someone needs to hear that, Father, may, may somebody, whoever needs to hear this, may they hear that they are bringing joy to you today as they come home. In Jesus' name, amen.